All right, if we could gather back. We gave you an extra minute in honor of Ann Neville. In the continuation of our study of Ezra, and in giving your pastor a little time off, I have asked Rob to take today and share with us from the book of Haggai, chapter 1. You cannot have the book of Ezra without the book of Haggai. As a matter of fact, one of the commentaries that I'm using for the study of this book is uh, by a guy named Robert Fial. You've heard me quote him. And the title of his book is Ezra and Haggai. In other words, he covers the book of Ezra, Ezra and then the book of Haggai. They go together. And so, and also to avail ourselves of not just Rob, but several others of uh, very gifted teachers and, and, and uh, speakers that we have in our congregation. Somebody asked me one day, one, he said, how many people you got in your congregation that you'd feel comfortable putting in your pulpit? I said, about seven or eight. He said, I got, I said, oh yeah, I mean, but anyway, to avail ourselves of these gifts, so uh, maybe in the future you may hear less of me, so you can just get over it or through or rejoice or whatever category that puts you in. Uh, but I but I asked Rob today to take chapter one and and walk us through it, and in about a month from now, Kevin Brummett is going to take us through chapter two of Haggai. So. Brace yourselves. So anyway, Rob needs no introduction, but I wanted to let you know what we're doing here and why I'm sitting over there and Rob's going to be standing here. Let's welcome Rob Shearer. Yeah, I met, I met Larry in the lobby this morning and I walked him over to Howard and I said, Howard, this is a visitor. And Howard, of course, wanted to give him a visitor packet, so... Um, Let's pray first, and then we'll talk about Haggai. Father, thank you that you have left us a record of how you have worked in history, a record of your people, a record of the highs and the lows and the challenges and the triumphs, and that that record is inspired and trustworthy and authoritative and has lessons for us to learn and to put into practice in our lives. I give you thanks for the word. I pray your spirit would make it clear to us what the lesson is from the book of Haggai. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, yeah, why did you stop? Um, <laughs> I had several, oh, moments this week as I was looking over the book of Haggai and, and reading some of the commentaries and secondary material about it. Um, so I'm going to share those with you because I figure if I had some oh moments, you might have them too or share them or at least um, be amused that I, I had seen things that you had seen a long time ago and you're wondering where I was. Um, but if I could have the next slide. Here we go. Um, don't don't worry about the complications of this chart. I can simplify it for you. But you see, over there on the left, sort of highlighted, Haggai and Zechariah, because they're two of the 12 prophets, and Malachi at the end. And we got about 100 years in time from Ezra 1 through 6 
he covers the first three big events here, to Nehemiah, to the prophet Malachi. And, and Haggai occurs right in the middle, or, or maybe in the first third of the book of Ezra. And so as I'm looking through all of this, I'm going, well, okay, so it's only two chapters. What is there to say? And, and, and the first chapter is not all that long. What can I say? What is there here? Um, I've read it, but I confess I probably read through the two chapters of Haggai pretty rapidly and didn't spend a lot of time contemplating them in the past. And uh, that's to my uh, embarrassment because I should have slowed down and looked more closely at it. I had a lot of fun when I did. And part of the fun was reading what other Christian commentators have had to say over the centuries. Um, our Saturday morning men's Bible study, which I have only half in jest dubbed my Sanhedrin, um, are a bunch of guys who take the scriptures seriously. And usually I can just ask a question and then kind of step back and, and let the, the opinions be shared and the back and forth start, and it's educational. And God has sent us um, Avraham Cohen, or Kagan, he is a Cohen, but his English name is Kagan, um, who grew up in Israel, and when we're turning in our English Bibles for an Old Testament book, he's turning in his Hebrew Bible, and he's reading the Hebrew. So one of the gentlemen in the Bible study just yesterday asked me, how come we don't have a Talmud like the Jews do? The Jews have a Talmud. They have Torah, which are the inspired word of God, the books of the, the law and the prophets and the, uh, the wisdom literature. And then they have a Talmud, which are the collected teachings and commentaries of all the rabbis over the centuries. And he's going, how come we don't have a Talmud? And I said, ah, but we do. We just don't call it that. But we have, this is a, a great series. It's a volume called The Ancient Christian Commentary on Scripture. Let's go back and, and pulls the writings of the early church fathers, Augustine and Chrysostom and Jerome and all these folks from the, the first 10 or 11 or 12 centuries. And so for the book of Haggai, I was able to go through and read these things, and it saved me from saying, oh, I'm seeing something that nobody has ever seen before. And God's going, no, you're not. No, it's something you've never seen before, but it's not something nobody has ever seen before. And just as the, the Jewish tradition benefits from the Talmud, from the collection of rabbinical writings and commentaries, they're not authoritative, they're not inspired. You can't take any part of them and build theology on just one opinion of one rabbi in some century. But when you take them collectively, you know, you go, well, this guy's way out somewhere, and this guy's way out over here, but these guys have got some interesting things to say. And the lineup varies as you move from book to book. A, a, a commentator who's way off on one book may be very insightful on another one. So it's just a useful corrective to realize that, um, you know, we, we woke up on third base, but we didn't hit a triple. Um we, we suffer from that. 21st century, we, we think we are the latest and greatest in the end-all and the be-all, and uh, no, we're not. We woke up on third base. Somebody else got us here. All right, this one's a little overly complicated, but it, yeah, there we go. Well, yeah, let's stay there. For, go back, go back. Stay there for just a second. It does show you um, the kings of the Persian Empire along the bottom. It does highlight... Um, three different returns to Jerusalem 
And it highlights three different events associated with those three different returns. And um, Larry's already preached on um, the first part of the first event, but this chart doesn't quite get it. So next chart. This chart, which is even busier and you cannot possibly read, um, but I'll, 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 and I'm not going to deal with the second and third return, but it's not just three returns I discovered. I never knew this before. It's three returns, but it's four revivals and four restorations. So the first restoration, which, which Larry has preached on and which I found fascinating, is the very first thing they accomplish, the first thing they do. It's not rebuilding the temple. It's rebuilding the altar. And that's significant. That's important. They rebuilt the altar. They, they built the foundations of the temple. And then they stopped. And there needed to be a second revival. And the second revival is led by Haggai. Haggai comes in and challenges those who have come back and started a very good work and accomplished a very important thing and says, why did you stop? You did something important. God used you. You accomplished something. You you went back to Jerusalem. You had a decree from Cyrus, from the emperor, commissioning you to go back. He told you you could rebuild the temple. You quite properly began by rebuilding the altar, and then you stopped. And so this is not one continuous move in the spiritual life of Israel. It's a generation that accomplishes something, and then the fervor seems to decline and decay. And there's another revival They stopped and did nothing for 14 years. They built the altar, they laid the foundations, they stopped. They did nothing for 14 years. There's a second revival. Actually, move to the next slide. We'll, we'll, oh, okay. I have a different slide here, but I'm losing track of where I was. Oh, this is setting the stage. Okay. Huh? Well, I was trying to make things easier for you, but go back to the chart. We'll leave things difficult for a while. Um, restoration of the altar, restoration of the temple, restoration of the law. This is where Ezra himself comes in. Ezra is the historian of the first two movements. He's not a participant. He is the participant of the second return and the third restoration and then the book of Nehemiah is about the fourth. So they restore the altar, then they stop. Then they do resume work and they complete the restoration of the temple. And then there's a second return, and it actually is um, about 40 or 50 years later when Ezra comes, and Ezra brings out the law, the Torah. In fact, there's a rabbinic tradition Remember I mentioned the Talmud. There's rabbinic tradition that it's Ezra who actually assembles and orders and creates the canon. The five books of Moses obviously always went together. The wisdom literature went together. But it's Ezra, according to the rabbis, 
who actually arranged the Psalms of David in the order that we have them. The Psalms of David are not chronologically arranged. They're not arranged in the order of their composition. It's not a book of history. It's not a chronological. The book of Psalms is a hymnal. The book of Psalms is the, the hymnal of temple worship. And it's the liturgy of temple worship. And it becomes the liturgy of the feasts and the festivals. It's the, the liturgy of the Passover celebration, which is not in the temple. It's in each household. So the, the Psalms are a hymnal. And there's a very interesting rabbinic tradition about a couple of the Psalms that are, one of which, at least, is attributed to Haggai. It doesn't come at the end because they're not arranged chronologically. More about that later. Um, but every bit as important as the altar and the temple and the walls is that third restoration at the second return. Ezra describes coming out and reading the law to those who have returned from exile. Okay, so let's, let's talk about Haggai. All right, now we'll go on. Next slide. I'll go through this sort of verse by verse. Here, setting the stage. Who are the players? Who are the people? We get the cast of characters first. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai. That's an interesting expression. The word came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So Jehozadak and Shealtiel are not characters. They are just mentioned in order to identify who the players are. So if you go to the next slide, we've got Darius the king. Very important. This is anchored in history. We know when this happens. We know who the ruler of Persia is. Next slide. Yeah, there we go. Haggai the prophet. So he's the one whose words are recorded in this book. Next slide. Whoops. Back up. Ah, there we go. Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. So these three returns have three Jewish governors appointed by the Persian kings. Zerubbabel is the one appointed first. Ezra is appointed second, and Nehemiah is appointed third. So Darius the king, Haggai the prophet, Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor, and then the last one is Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Joshua, by the way, um, is the um, anglicized form of the Hebrew name Yeshua, Joshua. Jesus, the name of the high priest in that first return is Jesus, the high priest. Hmm. Things that make you go, hmm. Okay, next slide. No, next slide. There we go. See, I did clean it up. I just didn't forget the order I'd done it. So that first restoration is what Larry has been um, preaching about in Ezra. The restoration of the altar, and there you see toward the bottom, you probably can't make that out, but it's in all caps, the work ceased. They rebuilt the altar, and then the work ceased.
Why did you stop? Next slide. Ezra gives an account of why they stopped. Ezra 4 says they faced opposition. There were complaints from Rahum, the chief deputy, that would be an official of the Persian government who's got authority over a wide region, and Shimshai, his scribe, and joined in that complaint the judges and magistrates from Tripolis, Persia, Eric, Babylon, Susa. And then here's an interesting addition to that list of people making the complaint against those who are rebuilding the altar and the temple. The rest of the peoples whom the great and illustrious Ashurbanipal deported and settled in the cities of Samaria. So that means you have to go back a little bit here and remember that there's the northern ten tribes and the southern two tribes. The northern ten tribes who had populated the territory north of Jerusalem committed apostasy. Jeroboam built them two new rival temples and set up golden calves for them to worship. Irony of ironies, you'd think that would have rung a bell with somebody. Wait, you're setting up golden calves for us to worship? Wait a minute, have we ever done that before? How did that end? Uh, yeah, maybe that's not such a good idea. They had been destroyed 250 years before. They had been destroyed by the um, Assyrians. And the Assyrian practice when they conquered territory was to randomly select half the population and deport them. And bring in replacement peoples from other territories they had conquered on the theory that that made all of the territories they had conquered easier to govern. So the Samaritans are that half remnant of the northern ten tribes and half immigrants who have all assimilated with each other. And they're objecting to the rebuilding of the altar in the temple. And so they got a decree not from Darius, one of his six. There are two kings after Darius. One of those two is almost certainly the one they went to. They got a decree because they said, these Jews whom you're letting come back to that city, they have always been rebels and disobedient. They will not pay their taxes. They will not obey you. Why are you letting them rebuild? And so Darius, who had, initialed the, who had um, sent out the initial decree has died, his successor king kind of, I don't think, gets the history and says, oh, there are rebellious people, then tell them to stop. So they got a decree. Ezra 4.23 says they immediately went to the Jews in Jerusalem and forcibly stopped them. Got a stop work order from the building inspectors. No more work. Put up a big size. Nope. By, by decree of the king of Persia, no more work is to be done on this project. Next slide. Haggai apparently was not part of the first return. He apparently arrived later on. Haggai shows up in Jerusalem. And he says, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Haggai says, you stopped. 
you haven't done anything for 14 years. And the people are going, there's a stop work order. There's a decree from the Persian king says we had to stop. Haggai says, no, that's not why you stopped. You stopped because you don't think it's time. You just rolled over. They said stop work, and you went, oh, okay. Everybody puts their tools down and walks off. It's like, you didn't want to keep working, did you? You had a convenient excuse not to do any more work. Next slide. This is Haggai declaring the word of the Lord to the people of Israel as they have stopped work for 14 years. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? There's a foundation laid out for the temple, and it's open to the elements. You haven't done any work on it in 14 years. Is it a time? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. I don't want to talk about the stop work order from the king of Persia. I want to talk about what you've been doing. Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves. No one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. It's a great image. Because my temple is lying over there unfinished, open to the elements. And you say it's because, well, it's not yet time. There's a stop work order. We can't do anything. So the book of Ezra says there was a decree from the king that, and they were told to stop. Haggai says you stopped because you were more concerned about your own affairs you were more concerned about your own prosperity. You were more concerned about your own food and drink and clothing and shelter. Next slide. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Oh, there's an image. God says, when you brought home whatever you had tried to scrape together... I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself with his own house. You didn't stop work because the king of Persia told you to stop work. You haven't stopped work for 14 years because the king of Persia told you to stop work. You stopped work for the last 14 years because you were too concerned with your own affairs. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. You are seeking your own, and I'm not going to let that happen. Next slide. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. 
I kind of got convicted when I read this. It was like, yeah, God, I have so many things that I am concerned about, about my house, about my bank account and my garden and my vehicles. And you have not done any work on my house, says the Lord God. My house lies in ruins, and you're busy with your own house. Next slide. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. There's a challenge. Think about what you are doing. Where is your focus? Where is your energy? Where are your priorities? Consider your ways. Go up to the hills, bring wood, and build my house, build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Haggai's saying something unpopular. They haven't done anything for 14 years. Haggai says, go get the, get the supplies, go get the wood. Bring it down. Work on building the temple. Next slide. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year, of Darius the king. They repented. They changed direction. They heard what Haggai proclaimed to them. Haggai says, this is not just my opinion. This is what the Lord proclaims to you. And the people listened. They heard. They changed. They did something different. The governor, the high priest, and the spirit of the remnant of the people. Now, it's not just that the governor and the high priest had to say, hey, guys, um, we need to reconsider this. Can we, you know, call a solemn assembly and a meeting? And can we persuade you to change what we're doing? It's like Haggai's message immediately produced this effect. Next slide. Yeah. Zerubbabel, the governor. Next slide. Joshua, the high priest. Next slide. The spirit of all the remnant of the people. Next slide. So they resumed work on the temple and they rebuilt it. Now, there's more to it than that. When you get the next little bit in Ezra, you'll discover that Ezra is dealing with the procedural details. They have to counter the complaint that had been lodged against them. Cyrus had initially given them the decree to return and start rebuilding. Darius then revokes the stop work order and says, yeah, you should continue building, and they complete it. But Haggai has a different perspective. He's not recording the procedural details. Haggai is saying, you stopped work for 14 years, and it wasn't because of the stop work order. 
So his words had an effect. Next slide. Yeah, and it was accomplished. I mentioned um, Ezra's um, involvement in the, the, the collection of the books of the Old Testament and kind of their re-release, a republishing to the people of Israel. And his codification, um, again, rabbinic tradition, but I think there's good reason to, um, to believe it's accurate, that he arranged and collected the Psalms of David, actually not just the Psalms of David, but all the Psalms that we have in that book, that it is, in fact, the editor of the uh, hymnal of the temple, the book of Psalms, is Ezra. And when you get to Psalm 111, now this won't be in your Bible. And, and I was surprised when I, when I started reading these ancient commentaries, because all of them mentioned it. And then I'm looking at my Bible and I'm going, that subscript or superscript to that Psalm is not in my Bible. Where'd it come from? Psalm 11, 111 does have a superscript in the Septuagint. And it got carried over by Jerome into the Latin Vulgate. It's there in both places. Um, hallelujah, or Alleluia, Reversiones Agai et Zechariah. Hallelujah of the return of Haggai and Zechariah. Um, and again, most of the commentators say that's not just that it's a song about that. It's a song of those two prophets. So it's not in the oldest Hebrew manuscripts that we've got. That line is not in the oldest Hebrew manuscripts. But when the 70 scholars in um, about 250 to 130 B.C. in Alexandria, the, the successors to Alexander the Great, who now ruled Egypt, um, there was a large community of Jews in Alexandria, um, had contact with the Greek philosophers. The Greek philosophers were asking the Jewish scholars, what are these, these works that you keep quoting to us? Who is Moses? Who is David? Who are these prophets that you keep mentioning? And it came to the attention of the, the Greek ruler of the territory, and he says, ask them to translate their Hebrew texts into Greek for us so that we may read them too. So somewhere between 250 and 130 B.C., we got a translation of all the books of the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. And this superscript in this psalm appears in that Greek translation. Now, did they make it up? I don't think that's likely. I think they must have had a reason to say this is a psalm of the return of Haggai and Zechariah. It's not that long after Haggai and Zechariah probably came back um, about 500, 520 to 500 B.C. This is maybe 250 to 300 years later. And here's the interesting thing about Psalm 111. It's one of three um, ABC psalms. Um, there's Psalm 119, which is 
almost the longest, and each little verse is on a different letter of the um, Hebrew alphabet. Psalm 111 and Psalm 112 are only 10 verses each. And they're actually, each verse is divided up into two lines, and each line is a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So, next slide. You won't be able to read this either. But um, it's not hard to find. Um, and if you're learning Hebrew, which I have on my bucket list, but I haven't done yet, um, and you want to go from Aleph, Beit, all the way through the end, then this is a neat little way to do it because there you see the ten verses. Um, each verse, one through eight, has two lines. Verse nine has three lines, and verse ten has three lines. So having made all of those connections and given you a bit about the structure, this is a poetic form, 22-line poem. It's not all that different. It ought to remind you, it does remind me, of, a, of an English sonnet, which is very highly structured. Okay, let me. I, I want to read this because I think it helps us understand Haggai. Next slide. I'll, I'll put something readable up there for us. So I've done it in, in two halves. Here's the first five verses. And then the next five verses are on the next slide. Praise the Lord. Blessed the man fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Unto the upright there arises light in the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. A good man deals graciously and lends. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Next slide. Surely he will never be shaken. The righteous will be in everlasting remembrance. He will not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is steadfast. Trusting in the Lord. His heart is, his heart established. He will not be afraid until he sees upon his enemies. He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted with honor. The wicked will see and be grieved. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. You know, to me, after I had read the circumstances and the history of Haggai's proclamation to the remnant in Jerusalem and their reaction and accomplishment, and then reading this psalm, I'm going, yeah, it makes sense to me. It seems to me to fit. This exaltation in this short psalm of the righteous and the destruction of the wicked. The wicked will perish, the wicked will melt away, not requiring any action on God's part or man's part. The wicked just are futile. They will not accomplish their ends. They will come to nothing in the end. And you, when you think back on the circumstances that Haggai found and his proclamation of what the Lord thought about the situation that had developed, 
And then the response of the people to that and their accomplishment, they rebuilt the temple. They succeeded. They resumed the work and brought it to completion after having done nothing for 14 years. So there's a revival at the beginning of the first return. There's another revival after a 14-year break. And they resume the work and complete the temple. And then we're going to get the second return where Ezra will come back and say, okay, great, we got the altar, we got the temple. Now you need to hear the law. We're going to restore not just the altar and the house of God, but the word of God. I had a bunch of, oh, moments as I was going over all this. These were things I had not known. I hadn't known there were the four separate events. I hadn't known that the three governors coincided with the three returns. I hadn't known that Haggai offers a different explanation for the stoppage of the construction project. Ezra says there was a stop work order. Haggai says, you guys rolled over and did nothing, and you shouldn't have. And God wants you to start over again. Go get the supplies. Go get the tools. Start working again. And that resonates to me. I hope it does to you too. Um, I think there are a lot of applications here for us. That we need revival. That we need to consider our ways. That's again the proclamation of the Lord. And the proclamation of the governor and the high priest. Consider your ways. What are you doing? Where is your time? Where is your focus? Where is your energy? What are you preoccupied with? And maybe, maybe, God says it's so. You're not prospering because your priorities are out of whack. You're not prospering because you're not focused on what I have called you to do. So, that's all I got. I'll pronounce a benediction. May God bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go forth.